Sometimes the challenges in our life feel insurmountable, but that isn't usually or necessarily the case. We're going to talk to somebody who really fit that description and yet thrives. Hit the music and let's get started. Joining me today is Dr. Kevin Payne, a man, a data research analyst, a survivor, a man who had to battle with multiple sclerosis, incredible weight gain and weight loss, and has come out thriving. And he's here today to share his insights with you. Dr. Payne, Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Bruce, and I am delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much. I Really look forward to talking to people on Monday because most of my family won't do that for me. (laughs) I'm right there with you. That's why we're in small basements. So, Kevin, the reason I asked you on is because, man, I don't want to make a big deal of all of your issues because you've spent the majority of the last 20 years making sure that you weren't making a big deal of all of these issues. But I think it would be helpful for my listeners, all five of them, to hear a story of somebody who has really overcome some potentially soul-crushing odds, and yet you didn't let it destroy you. You gained 120 pounds, you got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and yet here you are, thriving and jumping out of any plane that will open its door and let you. So please tell us a little bit about this really intense journey. Um, you know, people, people often have that sort of reaction to it, but for me, it's, it's just my life. It's, it's just what I've had in front of me. And for a long time, you know, I'll be the first to admit, I, I did a pretty good job of failing spectacularly at what I wanted to do in my life. That was really frustrating to me because I I have all the book learning in the world. You know, my doctorate's in sociology and psychology. I'm supposed to understand how people work. But understanding how people work in the abstract is very different than putting all that education into action in your own life. And so for me, a lot of my journey for the last 15 years especially have been figuring out ways to practically translate that knowledge into things that I can use myself and that I can share with other people to try to help make their lives better as as they're dealing with some of the same things that, that I've had to deal with. So me in a nutshell, probably three things. One, a lot of education. You know, I, I I love the book learning. I spent 15 years as a professor. I left the academy a decade ago, which is probably a strange decision to become a, a startup entrepreneur and a data scientist. So I, you know, I left the safest job in the world as a tenure track academic for the riskiest in the world as, as, uh, as somebody building tech companies. I'm just kind of curious, what made you make that decision? How did you get, how did you get from I'm in academia, I'm somebody who thrives in that environment to, I'm headed into tech, I'm headed into startup and all of that good stuff. What made you make that decision? Well, I was, I was a tech geek before I was an academic. And, and so as, as, as a little kid, 
I started programming in the 70s on a PET 2001 microcomputer and an IBM System 31 mainframe, System 360 31 mainframe. Uh, so I've always had that as part of my life, and I've always been interested in that. After I'd spent 24 years in the academy as a student and as a professor, I kind of got to my the point where I was like, I think I've I've kind of accomplished everything that I want to accomplish in this area, and and so I really wanted to branch out and try something new. And I thought I'd developed a techno you know, a technology from my academic research that would be good in the marketplace. So it was kind of a natural transition after I kind of felt like I'd done everything that I wanted to do. Cause I spent the last seven years as a professor heading a large department. And, you know, I had 150 instructors and 10,000 student enrollments all around the country. And the next thing for me to do in the academy would be like become a dean or something like that. And I have no interest whatsoever in, in doing that sort of thing. So, you know, this was, this was my, my next step, so to speak. When you decided to take this risk, I assume you were already dealing with the throes of the multiple sclerosis? Yeah, I had been diagnosed, and and certainly the symptoms had become more pronounced. And, and uh, you know, I was about, what, seven years into my diagnosis or so at this point, six or seven years. I thought, I, you know, I had a pretty good handle on it at that time. You know, in retrospect, if I, if I would have understood just exactly how bad a turn it was about to take, <laughs> I may have reconsidered my decision because shortly after I did make that that jump we had gone through the stress of dealing with a wife who had almost died of cancer and then my MS had gotten worse and that triggered a really nasty exacerbation in me and my symptoms flared up and they flared up in ways that they had not before they weren't primarily physical they were primarily cognitive and as a guy who's depending on his brain to make a living in the world, that was really disturbing and it was really depressing. What I wanted to ask, though, I feel it's not nearly as relevant a question anymore, is when you had made the decision, did having this diagnosis play into the decision to go out on your own? Well, it held me up from doing it for a number of years because when I was first diagnosed, so let me like rewind my medical history just a little bit here. Uh, I, I first became symptomatic with multiple sclerosis in 1989 when I was in college. I just turned 20 years old. I, I had some balance issues and I started itching everywhere and I became cognitively kind of foggy. I lived with that for a couple of months, and then I went to a physician there at the university, and he said, oh, you're depressed, because I guess that's what, you know, a, 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 you know, a college student with squishy symptoms is going to be. And, and there's no doubt that I, I fit several of those criteria, but I had some other things as well. You get depressed from feeling that way. There's no way you feel that way and are also still a bright, cheery, happy, go-lucky individual. Yeah, exactly. Because you know it was really confusing and it was and it was disheartening in ways. So he sent me to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist confirmed, yes, it's major depression. Put me on drugs, 
we trialed, I don't know, three or four drugs over the next few months. None of them worked, so they tagged my case as treatment resistant and just kind of left it at that. So that was like the first exacerbation that I went through, but I didn't know that's what it was at that point. And things got better, and I went on with my life. Flash forward then to 1997 or so, I had these symptoms again. They were worse, and there were also some some other weirdnesses. Some My body didn't exactly move the way I wanted it to move and everything. And this is where weight becomes a real factor in my story, because up until that point, I'd been a pretty fit person, naturally. I mean, I'm about... I'm five nine if I if I stand up straight and and think tall thoughts, and uh, <laughs> it's true. I'm five ten on dating websites too. So <laughs> okay, okay. And I was normally about 140 to 150 pounds, so you know I was, I was fit, and and I and I like to exercise, and I, I like you know I lift weights and and would run and and was generally pretty active. Well, at the end of college, I, I decided the last couple of years in college to really hit the weights. So by the time I left college, I was a cut 185, which was, you know, that's, that's big for my frame. That was... You gained 40 pounds of muscle. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. That's work. It, it was, yeah, it was. It was three hours of lifting weights every morning. And, you know, I was a young guy. What did I know? And and so it was you know, like twenty seven inch waist, forty six inch chest, single digit body fat, and and then I went on to work on my doctorate. And after a year or two, it was like I can't maintain that, so I stripped myself down to about a a fit one sixty five or so. So then this exacerbation happens, and I get confused, I get depressed, I don't have. I'm dealing with you know medical fatigue at this point but I don't recognize it as such. All of my good habits out the window. I I stopped fixing my own food. I started eating out all the time. I was I was drinking like 2 liters of Mountain Dew a day. I was not lifting weights or running or any of that stuff over a period of about 2 years. I ballooned up to 260 something you know so that's that's you know that that expanded my waist from a trim 27 to barely squeezing into a 46 inch pant and i didn't even notice it at the time i wasn't paying attention to myself and so one day in 99 i walk into my bathroom in the morning and I see myself in the mirror. And for the first time, it was like I really saw myself in years. You know, because we all carry this mental image of ourselves around in our heads and sometimes that doesn't reflect what we're actually physically presenting to the world at at that time. And so I was stuck in that and I looked at myself in the mirror and I I my jaw dropped and and I said, "Oh my gosh, I look like the guy who ate Kevin. And the second thing that I thought to myself was, I'm too fat to go back to skydiving. And that is maybe the third thing that, that people should know about me. 
I had a childhood fascination with wanting to become a skydiver. I did the training in the 90s while I was in grad school and got a handful of jumps in. And then my fitness got in the way, you know, finishing the education got in the way, family, kids, career got in the way. And then I had MS. And one day I was trying to mow the lawn a few years after I'd been diagnosed. And I, I thought I was respecting my limits, but I wasn't. And I overheated myself. And heat sensitivity is a, is a big issue with multiple sclerosis a lot of the time. And so I overheated. I passed out. I just fainted. It felt like I was being stung by a horde of electric hornets. And, and the pain just caused me to pass out. And I woke up and I'm spastic. I'm paralyzed on the grass. And I look up at the sky and I have this perverse thought, what a beautiful day for skydiving. And then I, my second thought was, you're laying here paralyzed on the grass. You are never getting up into the sky again. And so I gave up on that dream. And just for clarification of timeline, did that moment happen before or after the wait moment? That happened after. That was, uh, what, about 2014 or so when I when that happened, give or take. We'll get back to that. But going back to there you were, you were so busy into your, one, your symptoms and two, your studying that your fitness had fallen away, your eating habits mm -hmm. had deteriorated, your weight began growing, and you didn't notice it partially because you had other things to focus on. You just simply weren't paying attention until you saw yourself in the mirror. How did you make the decisions to make the changes? And then what were those changes you made? And were there challenges in relation to making the change? Because sometimes the gravity of habit and the gravity of behaviorism creates pull against making these beneficial changes. So what did you do, Kevin? Yeah, we are always, and you know, and I say this as a social and behavioral scientist, we are always our own bottleneck. It's, it, it is always cognitive and emotional and behavioral and, and stuff. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the only source of our challenges, but it is always part of the equation. The first thing for me was having this, this honest view of myself allowed me to make sense of some other things that had been happening in my life. So, for example, I'd noticed that I'd started getting really clumsy. Okay, now part of that I know now was because my MS was acting up and I was having some issues with my legs. But it was also true that I was now twice as wide as I used to be. And I was still seeing myself the way I used to be, and I was not allowing myself enough room, and I was bumping into everything. I also noticed it was really shocking to me in a lot of ways, because I'd read the research about how there, there is this fat discrimination in our society. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I was very well aware of the research surrounding it. However, it was only once I saw myself in that way that I realized I had actually been living that for the past year or two. 
and didn't recognize it as such because people were treating me differently. And I was still seeing myself as the same person inside that I'd always been. And, and so suddenly, a lot of my recent experience just kind of swam into focus. That was remarkable for me. So you're somebody who didn't have those experiences who suddenly did. So do you have a concrete experience that you can share of one of these moments where you were discriminated against, looked down upon simply because of your weight? I'll give you, I'll give you the perfect example. So, so uh, remember, so most of my life I was relatively lean, relatively fit and, you know, reasonably charming. And at one point, Jack to high hell. Yeah. And some, for a while there, you know, I was, I was pretty ripped. And, and so, and I'd always been like very outgoing and, and, you know, I grew up on stage and, and, and so I'm, I'm a performer. I was always used to that sort of thing. And I was very comfortable dealing with people and have lots of adventures and lots of stories. Cause like, I'm the kind of guy who always was, yeah, sure. We'll jump out of the plane. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, Learned to bungee jump with the Oxford Danger Sport Club when I was there as an undergrad. You know, yeah, sure, I'll do, you know, all these things. So I collected a life full of colorful stories. So while I was working on my dissertation, the very I had a dissertation fellowship, and they would fly all of us with a fellowship into Washington, D.C., uh, you know, once a year, and we would all meet. Well, the first time we did that, I was at my heaviest. And it was before I had this aha realization. It was just like a couple of months before I actually had that. So I'm there and, you know, we're all getting to know one another and swapping stories and that sort of thing. And I noticed that I would tell one of my colorful stories and other people around me would kind of give this confused look. I didn't quite place it. So then flash forward, I get back home and I have the aha and I immediately start trying to recover the old habits that I had in my life. And, and of course, in, in some ways, it's easier to renew an old habit than it is to gain a brand new fresh habit that you've never had canalized into your life. So I, I started doing this and, and, you know, there were lots of false starts and I had to start really small so I couldn't like run. I was, I was too heavy and I was too out of shape to, to do that. So I got something that it was a kind of a seated recumbent sort of device. It was, I think it was called a health rider and, and it was something that I could sit on and I could still get cardiovascular workout, but it used armed, arms and legs. So it was you know something so i did that i started with really light weights i you know i just i just really went back to embarrassingly small baby steps had to let myself be okay with doing that which is a skill by the way that will that has stood me in good stead over the years because sometimes i'll have a really bad exacerbation to my ms and part of that is my exercise kind of goes out the window cuz physically i can't do it and then it's a matter of starting all over again and, and you know, relearning. So, so this was good. So I have almost a year then of exercising and eating right 
I'm not really super food motivated, so the changing my diet was fairly easy for me. It was just a matter of I'm I'm going to stop eating out. That was the big thing for me because I would be eating out and I'd have those massive portions and then order dessert and it was just really awful. So the next year then, I came back and I wasn't back to my normal weight yet, but I was much closer to the me that had been the me that had collected those stories. And I'm I'm sitting there talking to one of the guys that that I'd become friends with. And he lean, he's, he's looking at me like this, this kind of quizzical look. And then he leans into me and he says, is this the you that goes with your stories? As if he couldn't imagine that somebody who was on the hefty side would be out there experiencing life. Right, because we're just... We're just in the kitchen. We don't have time. We're stuck in the refrigerator, just eating everything we can. Exactly. And that's when it just really clicked for me. Yeah, that's what that bias is. And this is what it's like to live it. Because I'm not going to lie, the, you know, the, the experience of not being able to use my bodies in the ways that I wanted to be able to use my body, that was really disconcerting. But it was just as bad the way other people reacted to me and somehow saw me as less than. Well, I congratulate you on being able to overcome and get yourself back on track. It's by far not an easy thing to do, though. I guess congratulations on not being very food motivated. I've met people before in my life whom don't care about food, and I've always admired that, even though I know it's not something they had to have been born with it. I don't think you can really develop. It's luck of the draw. How long to get to the you that you were? It, it was a, about another year or so. So it was about two years up and then about two years down. So by the spring of 2002, yeah, I was I was back to a recognizable me at that point. And have you ever since then gone back up? Have you ever had any other food-related issues come into it or were you able to maintain control? I've, I'm, I'm generally pretty much here uh, at, at, at this current weight. I've, I've been, I think now, Okay. So, so yes, I will go up and down like maybe around 20 pounds occasionally. I've done that a couple times when my body wasn't working really well and I was having a hard time doing the exercise that, that I normally do. So I was having a hard time lifting weights. I don't run anymore because balance issues. So I row instead. If I'm really fatigued, if I'm really exhausted, then, you know, what I've done is I came up with what I call my plan C strategy. So everybody has their plan A, and that's their best case, what they want to accomplish. A lot of people are, are smart, and they come up with a plan B, right? And, and this is, you know, how you're going to get something out of it, even if you're not going to make your best case. I decided I needed plan C, and I first came up with plan C to deal with the workout. And, and the reason why is behaviors, we, we all think of changing behaviors as this tiny little 
thing that we need to change. And we're focused on that, that external behavior that we can see. But behaviors are doing cognitive work. They're doing emotional work. They're doing identity work. There's, there's a big iceberg of stuff underneath our behaviors. One of the crucial differences when we're having really bad days, you know, and we can have really bad days and we're feeling down, maybe depressed, maybe we're just dysthymic, but, you know, we're feeling really bad and we, and we draw into ourselves and, and maybe we despair of being able to keep up that habit of eating decisions that we want to be making or movement decisions that we want to be making. And I really don't think about it as diet and exercise because if you think about it that way, that's not sustainable. It's, it's thinking about it as changing the, the movement decisions that you're putting in, into your life and changing the food experiences that you're putting into your life. So we can feel really bad and then we just give up that day and we do nothing, right? And, and you know that if you do that, by the time you get to the end of the day, we're just kicking ourselves. We're, we're berating ourselves and, and you know, we're, we, all we can see is what a failure we are. And that tends to lead to the next day going to hell as well. Exactly. And, and now you're setting up a big string. So cognitively, emotionally, something, no matter how small, no matter how tiny, is light years different than nothing. And that's my plan C. My plan C is like if, if I really can't get a workout, even a, a plan B workout in that day, plan C is my minimum amount of, say, movement that I know that even on the worst day, I can still do. That way, by the time I get to the end of the day, I've got something emotionally to hang on to, to say, this day is not a zero, it's a something. There's a little victory that you can look to. You've established a floor. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's helping with that identity work. It's helping maintain the habit in my life and the place for that habit in my life. Because if you do nothing, you're allowing a new a space for a new habit to come in and start taking root. So maybe it's, and literally this has been plan C on some days, I will go down to my weight room, sit on the weight bench, and mentally walk myself through a workout for that day. Because mentally and, and temporally, I've saved a place for that in my life that day. So you go down there and even though you couldn't physically do it, you go down and you visualize it. You take the time that you were, you were going to take. You don't just chalk it up as a failure. Mm -hmm. At least you did that much. You participated to a small degree. You still were there mentally. Right. Right. And, and that is just, you know, I just can't emphasize, you know, all the research tells us that maintaining that place is a really important thing for building habits and building identity because, you know, you want to reinforce the identity that you are the kind of person who moves. You are the kind of person who 
enjoys and savors food, but is not controlled by it. So that's why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all about, it's not diet, it's not exercise, it's, it's movement and it's fuel. You've discussed how that visualization looks from the movement standpoint. Give me an example from the food standpoint. Even though working out gives you a hell of a lot of health benefits, weight loss is primarily diet. It's almost completely diet. Mm-hmm. So the food part is the more important part for somebody who wants to make that journey. Yes. And of course, that's where a lot of the difficulty comes in. Mm-hmm. So how does that visual, how would we visualize today? We lost it. We didn't eat the way we had wanted to. We really went almost on a bender and we're out now at that end of the day. And you really are kicking yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How would that visualization work? Okay, so let's take let's, there's a couple of really uh, I think important points here in in what you ask. So the first thing is looking at not visualizing what you're eating, but how you're eating it. Okay, so one of the things we do when our diet gets completely off kilter is we start distractedly eating. We're, we're just eating as we go along. We're multitasking. We're doing something else. And we're reflexively reaching for that food. So it helps if you start thinking of the act of eating as the act of eating and nothing else. So, so when you imagine yourself eating, imagine yourself making a space and a time and a place to just eat and to just experience the eating. Because eating can be wonderfully sensual. And eating is eating is also the most intimate physical activity that we tend to share with other people in polite company. There are there are what are called rules of commensality in societies. We have rules about how we break bread together. And, and eating with another person is an important experience. So, so in the first place, maybe you're having a difficult time changing what you're eating. So focus instead, exert your agency on thinking about and then replanning how you're eating. And at first, maybe you're eating the same amount of calories. Well, it's okay. Now you're doing it more mindfully. You're doing it in a way that's more aware. You're also doing it in a way that is more sensually fulfilling, right? Because you're experiencing the goodness that's associated with with nourishing yourself. Another thing that you can do when you're visualizing this, and then you can begin start putting it into action, have you heard of the Okinawan practice of harahachibu? I have not. Oh, this is a great one. This is so good. So, you know, Okinawa's, uh, you know, they're in the the Japanese archipelago, and, mm-hmm. and and there's there's a tradition that they have around eating. It's it's one of those places in the world known as a blue zone, where people live to exceptional ages and tend to have not only good lifespan, but good health span as well. 
And one of the things that they do is their dietary practices tend to be really healthy. Okay. And something they do is called hara hachi bu or hara hachi bun mei. And what it means is eight parts full. And now, and, and now we know that there is good medical and biological evidence to support this. So what does it mean? It means you eat until you feel about 80% full. And that means that you have to pay attention to yourself while you're doing it, right? And, but we've already practiced that because we've already set up eating more mindfully and thinking about eating more mindfully and more focused. So now when you're 80% full, when you feel most of the way full, pause. Just pause. Pause for about 15, 20 minutes. And you can still leave the rest of it there and go back to it if you want later. Pause for 15 or 20 minutes. And the thing that happens is after that time, you will realize that you are actually physically full. And the reason why this works is because it takes a number of minutes for our stomach to update our brain with an accurate understanding of how full our stomach actually is. Especially with carbohydrates. Yes. So if you practice harahajibu, eat till you're 80% full, do something else, or just sit there and look at it, you will realize, oh, I really am full. And, and you won't have as much hunger drive to keep eating the rest of it. If we can start by visualizing and changing the experience of eating, okay? So now you're not just eating for comfort, you are consciously experiencing the feeling of comfort that you're getting when you're eating, right? Not just distractedly doing it. Because you know we don't get as much out of any experience that we have if we're not focused on it. No, we just shovel it in and then we just come back and shovel more in later. Exactly. So, so if you're going to shovel something in, get the most out of that experience. And then once you've, once you've gotten the most out of it, you will find that you are more satiated cognitively, emotionally, than you would have been if you weren't paying attention to it while you were doing it. That makes a lot of sense. It's a, some very good tips there on trying to revisualize your eating in a different way. And some that I think I would like to partake of. Yeah, it really does work for me. It, it, I, I, I just, you know, I, one of the things that I did when I lost that weight was I knew the research. So I, I, I was interested in making it a more conscious experience so that it wasn't something that I wasn't monitoring, that I wasn't paying attention to. It's like, you know, we fill ourselves with empty cultural calories too all the time. We flip on the TV and we do something else and it's and it's it's empty cultural calories. Well, if you're going to consume them, be in the moment of consumption. There's nothing wrong with consumption. We can get ourselves all guilty feeling wrong about consuming. No. Humans have to consume. Consumption is part of being human. But but let's focus on making that experience a quality experience that we value, and then we won't have as much drive feeling like we have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it because we didn't get as much out of what we've already consumed as we could have otherwise. It's sometimes as a bit of a working thing for myself, when I'm going to sit down and have to edit or do something, 
I might spend mm-hmm. 10 minutes beforehand just going through social media, going through TikTok and Instagram and all that stuff and just concentrate it, just go through it and enjoy it and then put it to the side, focus on the work as opposed to going back and forth and not doing particularly great work and also not getting too much enjoyment out of the media that I'm trying to consume by making it a very appointment style, concentrated, I'm taking this moment, this defined longer moment that I'm really concentrated on. It makes it easier than to focus on what I want to later afterwards. Yeah. And sometimes we feel there's some of these things that we want to do. And and at, at some level, we know they're kind of vacuous and and, you know, and and so we feel guilty about doing it. Well, no. Need the break. Yeah, we need a break. We need a break. And and humans need to feel happy, satisfied, functional, engaged, meaningful, secure. I mean, they're, they're, they're these core values that we have to feel. And just being happy, just just enjoying something, that's really important. That's a, that's a value in and of itself. It doesn't have to be anything more than that. And and we shouldn't feel guilty for engaging in something that's only that. I mean, that goodness knows, you know, I have spent 11 hours of my life now in free fall. <laughs> there is no practical reason why one should spend that much time falling through the air. <laughs> there just really isn't. I was trying to come up with a joke and I just failed completely. I, I have to ask though. <laughs> So you know the amount of time, you know it's 11 hours. Mm-hmm. Do you know the approximate distance? Have you like fallen the distance like halfway between here and the moon? I probably not. That's a very large distance. Yeah, no, it's not that, but it's so it's a, it's a, it's almost 3 miles a jump. So 600 jumps, so 1800, you know, about 1800 miles or so. So the continental US. Yeah, I mean, you know, a long long way. You fall in the continental US going lengthwise. And I'm still just getting started. You know, this is this is because 600 jumps is is enough to say I'm now an experienced skydiver. This, you know, the 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 training wheels are off. But you know, I I, I will probably never become an expert because I'm I I, I started as a, as a as a middle-aged guy with a neurodegenerative condition when I went back to it, and so you know, I'm I'm never going to be like a Red Bull guy, um, but I enjoy it, and I, I I have learned to push my body in a lot of ways that I I didn't think I could, and I think you know that brings to mind another thing that I think is really important with a cognitive shift with weight, and and it was really important to me. It's never ever ever about weight loss. It's never about weight loss. It's always about fitness. And by fitness, I don't mean some kind of measurement you take in the gym. What I mean is fitness is always functional. Your goal with altering your caloric intake and your movement in the world is, do I have a body that allows me to accomplish what I want to through the day and not be completely exhausted at the end of it so that I can get a good night's sleep and rest and recuperate and relax and grow and then get up the next day and meet the challenges that make my life worth living the next day. And and if you focus on that and not wait, focus on 
here are the things that I know I need to do. And amongst those are, I need to move more because I need to build my body up some more. I need to be more mindful and aware of my caloric intake and have quality calories, you know, spend more of my my eating experiences on foods that that I like to think of as remember where they came from. So they're not so overly processed that that you know they remember where they came from. Shop along the perimeter of the supermarket, avoid the aisles. And that's a really good heuristic for it. I'm I'm doing those things not because I want to be skinny or I want some particular cosmetic thing. I want my body to be able to carry me through what I want to accomplish during that day. And in my particular case, I know that because my central nervous system is being eaten away with MS, I need to do everything else I possibly can to up my fitness in other ways to try to compensate for that. Thank you. All of your tips have been very practical and to my ears, very helpful. How are you doing with your MS, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. Um, you know what? I, I, I swear, I think, so, you know, we've, it's gotten, so 99% of the time, most people never guess that I have MS. Most of my symptoms are, and there are two reasons for that. One, most of my symptoms are internal. I mean, I'm always in pain. I'm always fatigued. I'm always itching everywhere. I have these weird parathesias going on. I always have cognitive confusion that's that's happening, but my obviously noticeable symptoms usually only happen when I start getting really tired or when I get overheated or too cold. So I've kind of learned to really pay attention and not push myself past my my tiredness and i've I've learned to kind of control my temperature better and and those help quite a bit. In one way, you know, for many years, I simply did not feel my legs at all below my knees. Wow. And that led to some colorful incidents. And I, I once embedded a two-inch dagger of glass in my left foot and didn't even feel it until my kids told me about it. So about this time last year, after I had a little bit before that, so I'd, lo- I'd logged around 500 jumps you know, controlling my legs was a big deal for skydiving. That was that was one of my biggest challenges. I noticed when I landed one day that I had some feeling in my legs for the first time in years. And I think probably it was because I have spent so much time in the last, you know, in the previous couple of years concentrated on trying to understand signals from my legs. And I think I got some neuroplasticity out of it. Now, I, it, it still is wonky, and and you know, it's it's at best, you know, it feels like my legs are asleep, right? You know, when you slept on something, and 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 a lot of times they still are completely gone. But just to have a little bit of feeling in my left foot for the first time in in years, that was amazing to me. I was so delighted. Yeah, I mean, there, there are things, you know, it's, it's always a challenge, and, and I, I would never want to suggest to anybody that it's, oh, you do X, Y, and Z, and then, pff, you know, you're fixed, you're going to live a normal life. I'm not going to live a normal life. 
you know it's it's just not that but for the most part i have strategies that i'm i'm able to mostly keep with most days and i get something good out of that day you have an amazing attitude towards it i have to say i could only hope if that if faced with a similar challenge i could even have half of your focus and positivity towards it i hope you continue success in dealing with it well one you're very kind and two I haven't always been this way. And I, I went through some really dark places to to get to this point. That's a whole nother conversation. But and it is still something that, you know, I have good days and bad days. And that's okay. My I, I don't dwell on the bad days. You know, meditation and mindfulness and all those tools are really important to me. Uh just as important as exercise and nutrition and I I just, I want everybody to understand that you've got, you know, if you're like me, when I got really heavy, when my MS has been at my worst, I felt like I had no longer any control in my own life. And that was disastrous. There's still days when I feel like I don't have a lot of control in my own life. We have to build our mindsets to the point where we can accept that sometimes we're going to feel like that, but that doesn't have to define the next day or the next hour or the next whatever it is. We, we, can, we can accept those feelings and not beat ourselves up over it and say, yes, I've been there. Now I'm going to take one small step forward. You know, there's not one solution for this. It's strategy and mindset and and accepting that we each deserve kindness especially from ourselves and and i had to learn to be kinder to myself again another great pearl of wisdom in a talk that you've given lots of great advice so far do you have any other last advice or opinion for people you know the old parable about eating the elephant right how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Yeah, one bite at a time. Yeah. We can feel so overwhelmed because we're focusing only on the big picture. It can feel so daunting. It can feel like there's absolutely no one no way to to make a step forward. And and what I would like everybody to walk away from this with is we can all become more humble. We don't have to solve our problems in a big go. And if we try to do that, we're we're going to fail. You're going to fail. And and I talk about that this is like the first few chapters in my book. But, you know, the important thing is sometimes we don't take the step that we want to take because we find it humiliating. Maybe if it's not even in front of other people, we find it humiliating to ourselves that we can only do this small thing. But going back to what I said earlier, the small thing is light years different than nothing. So don't let the perfect get in the way of the good, right? Or the better. Do the small thing. Be humble. You will find, on average, you'll get a little better each day if you do the small thing. That's what I got. It's good. It's definitely good. So, Kevin, 
Where can people find you when they're not finding you here? They can go to yourlifelivedwell.co. Or if that's hard for people to remember, just remember justjump.life. Crazy guy with MS who skydives has a site called justjump.life. Uh, and they can find out more about the book and my podcast where I, I provide you know, advice like this for dealing with uh, life with chronic illness. So whether you are living with it or a caregiver or medical professional, that sort of thing, um, you know, lots of other goodies there. So and, and you can there are the links to all the social uh, stuff on there as well. And we'll link it here, too. And, and you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. And that's about as far as I go, because there, there are just too many social networks to keep up with. And I'm old. <laughs> Thank you again. As for me, I am the fittest fat kid you know. And you can find me at all the socials, at Instagram, at Twitter, at TikTok, at fittest fat kid. I have a Facebook page. It is Fittest Fat Kid. If you want to, if you have a question, if you have a concern, if you have a thought, if you have a story to share, you can email it to me at hi there at fittestfatkid.com. If you enjoy any of these episodes, please leave a like, a comment, subscribe. Always appreciated. At one point, there will be a website and it will be www.fittestfatkid.com. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are or what you're doing or what you're facing, hold yourself accountable, but do it with kindness and understanding. And I'll talk to you next week.